waiting on Andy. Okay, let's uh, gather ourselves to go on to the next session. Appreciate you coming, and I'll just mention briefly again, uh, for those who may be joining the live stream who haven't uh, been in the earlier sessions, uh, we at the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics uh, uh, have a desire to have a discussion among traditional dispensationalists. So. All of our speakers, we, we let anybody show up to our meetings, but all of our speakers, the ones on the platform, are traditional dispensationalists. And we're trying to have a discussion be, among ourselves. Been doing this since 2008. Uh, our annual meeting is a two-day meeting. We're meeting this year in San Diego at uh, Southern California Seminary. Uh, that's D David Jeremiah's uh, uh, seminary. Uh, and uh, we're excited about the, what's going to happen out there. Our topic is, does dispensationalism matter? Uh, and then uh, this is our first time to try a, a one-day kind of a thing, a uh, smaller venue thing, which we would also like to do several of these uh, around the country uh, where people don't have to take, you know, two days out, you know, and a day to travel and a day to come back and all of that. So, uh, so we're very thankful for your participation and those by live stream as well. We appreciate all of you taking your time out uh, to study the Word of God with us. Uh, again, my name is Dr. Mike Stallard, and I'm happy to be a part of the Council on Dispensation Hermeneutics. And in, in my session, the topic is Israel and the Book of Revelation. And uh, we don't have uh, a paper. I'm not doing a paper, just a PowerPoint. I just didn't have time to get a paper together. I knew I wouldn't, so I just did a PowerPoint. And uh, the, there's a handout with fill-in-the-blanks for those who are in the audience. Uh, the others of you, you'll have the whole thing by uh, PowerPoint being presented to you in the live stream. Uh, and as we go through this, uh, one of my goals is uh, to maybe, uh, in a, in a uh, apologetics way or a polemical way, respond to those who do not see the book uh, in the book of Revelation anything about Israel or the Jewish people. Uh, and there are people out there who interpret the book of Revelation that way. Uh, some of the replacement theologians and others who, uh, when they see the word Israel or something related to that, they just see the word church or something else. Uh, and uh, and I, I want to make sure that we understand, we have a strong case uh, from our side that Israel as a nation and Israel as the Jewish people have a strong role to play in the book of Revelation. That's my goal. And theoretically, we should do this for every single book, and we, we end up with an Israelology book in our presentation, which, of course, we have one of those on the market now by Fruchtenbaum. Uh, uh, but Israel is part of our theology. Now, I, I want to make a caveat up front. We were accused as, of dis, as dispensationalists of 
having the church as plan B. It's God's plan B. Oops, he messed up. Uh, Israel didn't accept him like he thought they would. And so he had to go and do plan B, the church. And then he'll come again later and finally accomplish what he had set out to do the first time, but had failed. That's how our theology is presented. And uh, that doesn't fit what we believe at all. Uh, we believe that church truth is high truth. It is important truth. It's significant truth. Uh, uh, but also uh, Israel, by its nature and volume in the Bible, takes up a lot of territory, so we have to pay attention to it. And we're also constantly having to do the polemical battle against those who are constantly putting us down because of our stand uh, for what the Bible says about Israel. Uh, so uh, I'm not ashamed to have to talk about Israel things, but when I do, I am not putting down the church. I pastored for 30 years. I know what it means to struggle in a local church and believe strongly in what the church is and what it stands for and what its purpose in the world is. And so we want to be fair and balanced and uh, hope, hope our uh, adversaries theologically would uh, stop doing the caricature against us on those things. Well, Israel in the book of Revelation. I'm going to highlight uh, several things in this presentation, but I'm going to begin here. The Jewish imagery from Old Testament Israel. And there's, in the book of Revelation, it's been called by some scholars the most Hebraic of all the New Testament books. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is, uh, it has the word chi, the Greek word chi, which means and uh, occurs in the book over and over and over and over and over and over. It, it's a little boring. It's about almost, not quite, 1,200 times in the book of Revelation. And it gives that feel of the, the Vav consecutive in Hebrew narrative. And this and this and this. Uh, it's called chi-meter or chiometer by some. Ed Heinsen in one of his books uh, mentions that. And it uh, carries with it this impulse of a chronological flow, like the narratives of the Old Testament and the Gospels. And so that's, those, are, there's those kinds of things in the, in the book of Revelation of Jewish uh, imagery or Jewish language that we could appeal to. I'm just going to pull out a few things. Uh, to talk about. And the first one is this, and it's a pretty major one. Jesus' description in Revelation chapter 1 correlates to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. One of the place, best places to go in the Bible to prove the deity of Christ is the book of Revelation. Of course, we naturally would go to John 1, right? John 1 1, uh, and some of the statements of John. Uh, John, who gave us the book of Revelation, uh, uh, Christ and working through him, uh, also gives us some information that helps us to identify Jesus as God. In fact, in the book, the Lamb of God who sits in the throne of God is God. And it's a very important imagery that we see. But in this particular one, in Revelation chapter 1, and I want you to see that in verse 7, it says, Behold, he, and it's talking about Christ. Christ has been mentioned in verse 5 as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, 
even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Now we see a reference there to two things. We see a reference to Zechariah, but we also see a reference to Daniel 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now, where does that come from? If you have a Bible, you can go to Daniel 7. I hope you have brought Bibles. This is a Bible church, at least on your phones. If we forget our Bibles, we still have our phones. (laughs) And a lot of them have Bibles on them, right? In Daniel 7, we have the vision of the four beasts, the animals coming in. And the fifth one is uh, uh, the kingdom of God. In the chapter 2, the parallel chapter, it's uh, the stone. The fifth kingdom is the stone that comes and smashes the kingdoms of the world. And, uh, and so we see the fourth beast in this sequence, who is Rome, in verse 7. Dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. That's the Antichrist figure. We could put all the Antichrist texts together and see that. You know, he's also the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6. Uh, uh, so you have this, this little horn that uh, creeps up uh, and begins to uh, wreak havoc. And he possesses uh, eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And then in 9 and 10, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, his wheels with a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court set, and the books were opened. So it's a courtroom scene. It's a judgment scene. And who's judged? Verse 11, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So you have a picture of the Ancient of Days judging the little horn out of the Fourth World Empire, judgment and death on the little horn, who's the Antichrist. And notice verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So you see the clouds of heaven. He's coming in the clouds of heaven. You see that imagery we read there in Revelation chapter 1. It goes back to this Daniel 7 passage. Now, there's some interpreters, and I've had uh, uh, good friends or or friends, uh, nice guys who tried to talk me into believing that this is talking about the first advent. But it's not the first advent. When does this kingdom come in? When does the Son of Man come on the clouds of heaven and receive the kingdom from the ancient of days? We know theologically, not entirely from Daniel, it's, it's... at the second coming. 
Now we do know from Daniel because it, the visions end up at the resurrection when God makes all things right. So we know it points to the end times. And even later in chapter 7, uh, it, it, it extends the description a little bit. In verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High, talking about the Antichrist, the little horn, and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. It's three and a half years. That's the last three and a half years of the trip. But the court will sit for judgment, goes back to that imagery of the Ancient of Days, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So right at the outset here in the book of Revelation, we have imagery that points to the second coming and the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. And in fact, it's not strange that the book would open with a picture of where everything is headed. Because that's the point of the book, where everything is headed. It deals with the end time day stuff. And later in chapter 1, and I won't take the time to go through this, it gives a description when John turns and sees the voice that was speaking and he sees this picture of, of Christ. And it's interesting, this picture of Christ goes back to the description of the Ancient of Days. Again, showing the deity of Christ, I think, is the intent of the statements. But we could, just spend, we could stay here a long time and just have some fun. Uh, I wanted to say the lampstands in chapter 1 relate to churches. That's very clearly stated. So the lampstands there are not Jewish menorahs. So they have nothing to do with Israel. So I wanted to make that statement here. Uh, see, I'm not interested in removing church things out of the text and just making Israel everything. And then another thing here in uh, chapter 1 and chapter 5 uh, is uh, the statement about the seven spirits. In 1.4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Okay, so him who is and was and who is to come, that's the Father from the seven spirits and then from Jesus Christ. So it's very tempting and correct to believe that the seven spirits somehow reference the Holy Spirit. Because you have the Trinity mentioned here, the Father and the Trinity and then Christ, although the order's not usually what we expect. We usually expect it to be Father, Son, Spirit. Here it's Father, Spirit, Son, for some reason. And I think probably the reason is literary, because he moves right into a description of the Son and the portrait of the Son, so he makes him last in that list. So I don't think that's unusual as well. But that comes from Zechariah 4. Where does this come from? In Zechariah 4, if I go over there. In one of the visions, one of the night visions, I, I see it and behold a lampstand, verse 2, of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Now the seven makes you think menorah, kind of lamp. So we're in Jewish territory and in fact the whole book is uh, very Jewish and about Israel, the book of Zechariah. 
uh, and also two olive trees by it. You know the Jewish thing, one on the right side of the bowl, the other on its left side. And then, the, then he asked, what are these, my Lord? And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I say, no, my Lord. There are several statements of ignorance by Zechariah in the book of Zechariah. Then he said to me, this is the, the angel said to him, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the governor, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It goes on to talk about the power of the spirit. And so this imagery comes relative to the Holy Spirit in the book of Zechariah. And here it appears in Revelation chapter 1. So you see this Jewish imagery right away. I'll skip five, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. It's the same thing. Then in the letters, Revelation 2 and 3, there are two negative references to Jews and synagogues. In the letter to Smyrna in chapter 2 and verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, the letter of Philadelphia, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, many Jewish people who are aware of the New Testament, and of course, they don't like to read our New Testament and don't spend time reading it, but the scholars want to get involved and even those who don't, like a good friend of ours, he's the number one tour guide for the Friends of Israel. His name is Tito. He's from, originally from Morocco, grew up in Morocco, immigrated, and uh, was a tank commander during the Yom Kippur War, I believe it was, or shortly thereafter in 1970s. And now he is an Israel tour guide. And he is very, very good as a tour guide. But I had an interesting conversation with him. He believes that the New Testament is anti-Semitic. And these are the kinds of passages that they would point to, to accuse us, of at least our, our documents that are special to us, of being anti-Semitic. And so here the Jews are viewed as a synagogue of Satan. Well, what do we have to say to that? Well, first of all, these are not statements about all Jewish people. These are very specific statements about a group of Jews in two cities. And apparently these groups of Jewish people were actually persecuting the church. See, it hasn't always been just one way. You go into the second century, and the second century was a century where there was severe attacks upon Christians by Jewish people. And they have to be honest with that about that. And you and I need to be honest about after the church came to power, especially in the Middle Ages, we returned the favor in spades, unfortunately, instead of showing Christian love. And so we turned the tables and persecuted them. Earlier they persecuted us. And at Smyrna, it seems, we know from the historical records in the first 50 years of the second century, there was great persecution of Christians. And so uh, we have that language about Jews and synagogues. So you, you have 
references to Jews, you have Jewish imagery, you have all those things. And you can go through the whole book and catalog these kinds of things. And so when you read the book of Revelation, I want you to uh, put on a Jewish cap, kind of, to at least remember uh, that uh, this is a Jewish book given by a Jewish Messiah to a Jewish, Jewish apostle. And let's not forget the Jewish backgrounds of these things. Uh, there's also the mention in 312 of a temple and the New Jerusalem. Uh, and I think that's still the letter to Philadelphia uh, that's there. And so we need to remember these things. Uh, but the guts of my presentation are these five things. Israel's future in the book of Revelation, there's ministry, there's persecution, and there's glory. And we have Israel's first appearance, the 144,000 in chapter 7, the two witnesses in chapter 11, uh, and a, a little uh, spoiler alert, the 144,000 are Jews. The two witnesses are Jewish people. Then the dragon against Israel. Uh, that's followed, by the way, in chapter 13, which I'm not covering, which is Antichrist against the world. And then chapter 14, a glimpse of the kingdom involving the 144,000. And then the New Jerusalem has something to say about uh, Jewish imagery and Jewish things. And so... Uh, again, what I want to do is look, as we look through these passages, uh, I want to remind us that there's enough in here for us to see a, an, a nation of Israel, tribulation and kingdom. And there's also other passages where it doesn't really hammer the nation, but it does hammer the people, the Jewish people. And so we have that, and so we can read the book of Revelation, and as we read the book of Revelation, we ought to see a big... Uh, section of information concerning Israel. Okay. So, let's get to it. The 144,000 in Revelation 7. It, the tribulation period is in view, obviously, because we're right in the middle, chapter 6. Uh, you know, chapters 4 and 5 are the introduction to the tribulation period. And they basically answer the question, what gives God the right to pour out his wrath? And there are three reasons the book of Revelation gives, by the way, for that, to answer that question. One is they deserve it. We get that from the bold judgments. Uh, this is the actual passage. They deserve it. Uh, but then you go back to 4 and 5. Chapter 4, God has the right to do that because he's the creator. And then in chapter 5, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who sits in the throne of God, who is God, has the right to do that because he's the redeemer. And it very specifically answers that question. He's the only one who has the right to take the seals off. And then what happens? As he takes the seals off, those judgments, the seals representing the writings, which outline the judgments, are then poured out upon the earth during the tribulation period. And he is the redeemer, and he has the right to do that. So it answers those questions. And the, the tribulation starts officially in chapter 6. Uh, but we have in chapter 7, after the six seals first six seals, we have what's sometimes referred to as an interlude. It's, uh, I think, additional information. I don't think it stops the chronological flow of the book of Revelation uh, because the seventh 
seal will be in chapter 8. And uh, those are chronological, 1 through, through 7. Uh, and in the first three verses of chapter 7, it says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And then it goes into the list of the 144,000. Now I'm going to give several questions and then give the answers based upon the text. Who is sealed? It's clearly the 144,000 in verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So you have 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. That's 12,000 from each tribe, according to verse 4. Uh, verses 5 through 8, it lists 12,000 from each tribe and actually lists the tribes. It's important to remember that. Tribes are listed specifically. I think that helps to push back against those who want to take this allegorically, take this in a non-literal or non-textual way. They are listed specifically. And is the reference to Israel literal? Look at me. Yes. (laughs) Why do we take it any other way? Um, uh, By the way, just let me camp out there. Okay. Uh, I think it was George Ladd, who was not a dispensationalist. He was post-trib, pre-mill, Dr. Leitner once told me he thought he wasn't really pre-mill, that he was just Ob Mill posing as pre-mill. I don't know. Uh, I never met George Ladd. I've read his, read his stuff. He, he refers to himself as pre-mill, so I'll take him at that. But um, he, is, he doesn't value the Old Testament prophecies like we do. In fact, he seems to be only pre-mill because of Revelation 19 and 20. Um, but George Ladd says, this, can't, this list cannot possibly be literally referring to the tribes of Israel. He says, this must be the church. Go to his commentary on Revelation and you'll see that. This is the church. And what's his reason? The tribe of Dan is missing in the list. Really? That's enough for you? But the tribe of Dan is missing? Um, there are several lists of the 12 tribes, and the lists vary with each other throughout the whole Bible. And so you need to be careful before you start making those kind of theological assessments, especially within a section uh, that's going to emphasize in the very next uh, segment, beginning in verse 9, a great multitude from every nation and tongue. So right here, it mentions specifically 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And then right away, an uncountable number from every tribe. It's very hard in that context to come to these 12,000 and say, this is something that's non-literal. And so 
These are, in fact, Israel. But is the number 12,000 literal? Is the number 144,000 literal? The resulting number. Look at me. The answer is yes. <laughs> Some say the number as representing completeness. Okay, go ahead and do that. But still, you can have a literal number that represents that completeness if you want to. Usually they mean by that an indefinite number. Some see the number representing government. Very interesting. I did my dissertation on Arno C. Gabeline. Associate editor of the Old Schofield Reference Bible. Editor of Our Hope magazine. Top dispensational Bible magazine from 1894 to 1945. It helped spread dispensationalism across America. And I came to love Arnold C. Gabeline, but he did some strange things in typology, Elliot. Really bizarre things in typology. And here he sees the 12. He takes Israel literally. The tribes are literal, but the number is not. And so he sees it as representing government. And so pure government. Now how that fits the context, I'm still trying to figure out. Most numbers in Revelation appear to be literal. In fact, a few years ago, I did a paper at the, at the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics, the literalness of numbers in the book of Revelation. And I took as my case study the number of seven, right, which occurs more than any other number in the book of Revelation. And I marched through every single occurrence of the number seven. It was exhausting because of so many of them. And I, and I outlined my conclusions and the the overwhelming sense of it is that it's literal. Now, there's seven seals. The number seven literal? Well, after each seal, there's a block of things happen. Take another seal, a block of things happen. The number is literal. Sometimes the things that are poured out are figurative language, but not the number itself. Seven trumpets, seven bowls. That may help us when we get to the number 1,000 in Revelation and I don't see anything contextual that would help me to understand the numbers here to be non-literal. The detail of the passage points to a literal interpretation. I think I'm redundant in saying that. Number three, what is the purpose of the sealing of the 144,000? I threw this picture in here because I just kind of like this picture from Revelation Illustrated. Um, so what is the purpose of the sealing of the 144,000? The text clearly says it is for protection. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So in some sense, hold back on pouring out judgment at this point until we've sealed them. And we don't really know exactly at what point that is. The protection may be until the ministry of the 144,000 is complete. In light of Revelation 14... They may be protected for the entire tribulation period. We're going to mention Revelation 14 here in a little bit, but the 144,000 show up a second time in the book. And I think there's a, a very intense and uh, on purpose contrast of this sealing to the mark of the beast in Revelation 13. The good sealing 
the very, very, very bad ceiling. And this is some artist rendition of what the Mark of the Beast might look like. I doubt that it's a barcode myself. Uh, but, you know, that may be what we have to use there, that barcode to pay $50 a gallon during the tribulation period for our gas. So uh, there's definite, in the book, it makes this contrast between those things. Now, why is the tribe of Dan missing in the list of tribes? And um, Gundry said it's because um, it's the church. That's the clue that the writer gave us to help us know this is the church. Well, that's not a big enough clue for me. It just isn't. So why is it missing? Here's the deepest thing I'll say to you today. No one really knows. And you know, Is it okay sometimes for us not to know? Now, I like to fill in the blanks. And uh, Elliot used the word speculating in his presentation when he was talking in Q&A. Well, we all speculate some. We all fill in the gaps a little bit. We all try to make reasonable connections. Uh, but we want to be clear that our theorizing about the connections, and I think Elliot said it right, is not the word of God. Our putting together the dots in our theology is what we do. God's word is something else. And of course, we're trying our best to represent what we think God's word is trying to communicate with us. But nobody really knows why the tribe of Dan is missing. I wish that Jesus would have had John put a footnote, inspired footnote, to let us know that. But he did not. But there is a tradition. Some believe it's because Antichrist comes from the tribe of Dan. Have you heard that before? Has anybody here heard that before? Okay, Just Andy. Dan is called a serpent in Genesis 49, 17. Remember when they, the blessings, the cursings, the, the family at the end. And the location of Dan in northeast Israel helps bolster the tradition that the Antichrist will be a Syrian Jew. And that tradition, we find it, for example, it's in the Pseudo-Ephraim document. Which may be uh, date as late as, or as early as the late 4th century, 380s. So that's an old tradition that the Antichrist is a Syrian Jew. There's another uh, ancient tradition. It probably started a little bit later, but it still goes way back. And that is that the Antichrist is the last pope. But that has nothing to do with the book of Revelation. No. However, there's no clear line of evidence that leads to the conclusion we will have to wait and see. But I can tell you some things that I know for sure. I can say, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that Hillary Clinton is not the Antichrist. <laughs> but you know why I can say that? Because the Antichrist, I think I can prove it, is a man. I'm not woke enough to have him as a woman. Okay, so uh, Antichrist is a man. So enough of that. Number five, what is the mission of the 144,000? According to Revelation 14.4, if we jet ahead to chapter 14, where the 144,000 show up again, it says that they serve the Lamb of God. So they're servants, and there's evidence that the 144,000 are witnesses for Christ, 
Various of our writers in popular literature have over the years stated 144,000 Billy Grahams let loose on the world. Is that really said? Well, I think there's some evidence. To serve Christ involves sharing faith when necessary in a general sense. And the 144,000 in Revelation 7, 1 to 8 precedes the section in Revelation 7, 9 to 17 about martyrs during the tribulation who receive salvation. So perhaps there's some connection that one leads to the other. That's not as clearly stated as I would like. The 144,000 may anticipate the special two witnesses who are actually called witnesses in chapter 11. I would like for that to be stated a little clearer. It's a possibility. This is true. God engages Israel again in the tribulation period. And that nation was always to be a light to the world. Isaiah 60. We have songs based upon this passage. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear on you, upon you. He's talking about Israel. Nations will come to your light. And this is a prediction for the future. The end of the book of, Revel of Isaiah points ahead to kingdom days. And so the nations will come to your light, Isaiah 2, as well. Now we move from the 144,000 to the two witnesses. And there's another good picture from Revelation Illustrated. See the two olive trees, and you see, I think they're trying to present Moses on one side, holding the... Uh, scroll of, of the law in his hand and Elijah the prophet on the other hand calling up to heaven to stop the rain uh, and then the, you see the lampstands there this is all this is all Jewish territory now let's uh, let's look at the details questions who are the two witnesses in general and here I'm going to say more than no one knows I'm going to say a little bit more than that they are two Jewish men. We know that. And notice the Jewish indicators in the passage. There's the Jewish temple. In chapter 11, 1 and 2. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Um, so you have a Jewish temple. The temple's mentioned. Then there's the holy city, Jerusalem. It's mentioned in verse 2. The holy city. Uh, what else would that be? I don't think it's Babylon. The holy city is Jerusalem. Although there is uh, one re reformed guy out there who holds the view that Babylon and the New Jerusalem are one and the same in the book of Revelation. And Babylon gets saved. And he's a post-millennialist, I believe. So Babylon is the pre-conversion. New Jerusalem is the post-conversion and a post-millennial vision of that presentation. 
Um, but he's wrong. But you see also down in verse 8, um, the dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem. In verse 13, in that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell, a reference to the city, the same city we've been talking about, which is the city where the Lord was crucified. So that's Jerusalem. And then the witnesses are called olive trees. Two olive trees. And they are called lampstands. And here the lampstands are different than the lampstands of chapters uh, of chapter 1, where the lampstands are the churches, and, and they're not menorahs necessarily in chapter 1. Here they may be menorahs because in the picture we saw, they were, the artists portrayed them that way uh, because they are Jewish. Now, what is the mission of the two witnesses? It's to prophesy for 1260 days. Jewish years average 360 days. So this is three and a half years or 42 months. I've had some people push back on me about uh, the Jewish calendar things. But you know, the Jews use a modified lunar calendar. You know, they did in the Old Testament days. And the average uh, lunar month is like 29 and a half days. It's 29 point something. I forget what the point something was. Point four or point six. Around 29 and a half days. And you round that up to 30. That's where that number comes from. Multiply it by 12. That's where you get 360 days. So they prophesied for 1260 days. That's three and a half years or 42 months. Which we saw that mentioned. The 42 months there in verse 2. And in verse 3 it mentions the 1260 days. They're also to witness and give testimony about God and his plan. In verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. I'll grant authority to prophesy. Uh, so and part of that, they're witnessing and give testimony. Come down to verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And they are to exercise supernatural powers, five and six. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. And then these have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So they are given great powers by God in the tribulation period, these two Jewish Witnesses. There are times when I would like to have that power that they were given. Really. But I think the Lord's wise in not granting it to me. I don't know. I might make some of you here to disappear. <laughs> no. Well, what is the identity of the two witnesses? In general, we saw they're Jewish men. Uh, but what are some of the specifics? You know, there are three major views. Maybe there are other views, but uh, these are the three major ones that I've run into. One is Enoch and Elijah. That has an early tradition in the church as well. Pseudo-Ephraim uh, refers to Enoch and Elijah as the two witnesses. I believe it's uh, Pseudo-Ephraim. So that would put it in the fourth century uh, or pretty early on. Uh, but there's a big problem with this one. Can, can any of you think why this would be a problem? 
you know, Enoch is not Jewish. And so remember, we had all the Jewish indicators for the two witnesses. Enoch is way before there's a Hebrew nation, uh, before there's a Hebrew ethnic group. So Enoch and Elijah don't fit. Why in history did that view arise? I think it may have arisen, and I don't know this for sure, but I'm going to speculate, Elliot, that it's uh, because they didn't die physically. And so they have to come back to die so that Hebrews can be fulfilled up to the point that a man wants to die. But there's a problem with that, because at the rapture of the church, there'll be a whole lot of people who don't die. So, I mean, the Hebrews passage is a the general way it goes, just a general statement. Then there's Moses and Elijah uh, in uh, 11, uh, verse 6. Uh, that comes from the identification that the, their ministries, their supernatural ministries, they have power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall. Uh, who's that sound like? Elijah. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague. Who does that sound like? Moses. So you have that description. Then you have Malachi 4. At the end of Malachi, the very last part of the Old Testament. Pardon me for my slowness. I'm using a Bible that I haven't used very much, so the pages still stick a lot. In Malachi chapter 4, it says, let's back up in uh, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So there is a prediction here of Elijah coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the great and terrible day of the Lord is probably a reference to something that happens in the end time days, maybe the tribulation period, or maybe the judgment events of the second coming itself. Uh, it's, uh, it's used both ways in different passages. Now, it's interesting that you have Moses in the context of this statement about predicting Elijah coming. And, of course, remember what Jews do at Passover. What do they do at Passover? They have Elijah's chair and an empty plate and an empty cup. It's a place for Elijah. And then during the, the Passover ceremony, if they follow the traditional Haggadah, they'll send a child over to a door to open the door to see if Elijah has come back. So they're looking for Elijah before Messiah. Okay. Well, if, if, if Elijah's coming back, you know, there's that statement uh, about Jesus in Matthew 16 and 17, where about John the Baptist, he could count as, you know, it's very problematic, sticky, wicked, you know, for us in theology, does he count as Elijah? But uh, people didn't accept him as that, so 
Uh, is there another coming of Elijah? I tend to lean that way, but, uh, but it's interesting. They are in the context together, Moses and Elijah, and the ministries are described. Now, the third view, two prophets like Moses and Elijah, well, the obvious strength of that view is they are not named in Revelation 11. Okay. Now, which of these do I hold? I've already told you. I lean toward the middle one. I know it's not the left one. It could be the right one. Probably the middle one. And after all, that's the way the Left Behind series does it. So it must be right. <laughs> what is the destiny of the two witnesses? The ultimate destiny is in that picture. But they start out before that, earthly murder and death. Back in uh, Revelation 11. Um, 7 through 10, when they have finished their testimony, the beast comes up and kills them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. And uh, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues of the nation will look at the dead bodies for three and a half days and won't permit that they be put in a tomb. Now, that's pretty mean, isn't it? And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They're going to be happy about the killing of these guys. Have you ever been happy about the death of someone? It's hard for a Christian to say, yeah, I should, I, I, I've been happy about the death of someone. But there was a time when I first went to Auschwitz and I walked through the buildings. Then went to Birkenau. And I'll switch. The very last thing they take you to, they take you through where the, they gassed them. And I stood there under the nozzles. You guys, some of you have been there. And then they take you where the, the heat ovens were, where they burned the bodies. Then they take you outside, and across the little road there are gallows. Where after the Nuremberg trials, they brought the guy who was the commandant of Auschwitz. And they hung him right there in front of the gas ovens. And when we got to that place, my soul surprised me because I experienced great joy. And I kind of caught myself. Great joy. Now, that was a thing. And I never met the guy. It's a long time ago, 1946 or 1947, when he was finally executed for, as a criminal for such heinous things. And I, I just thought I was filled with joy because of justice. So it is okay for us sometimes to celebrate the death of someone. As a matter of fact, I have a feeling in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back, we will celebrate the death of many people. Now, I know that's harsh, comes across as harsh. And, and we, we try to fight against those tendencies for us just to rejoice over the downfall of others. And, and in this life, we try to do that. But we're talking about Jesus when he comes back. We're talking about real justice against real evil. In which case, there may be a place for imprecatory kinds of praying and celebration afterwards. Um, so, enough of that. Physical resurrection, ascension to heaven in 11 and 12. 
After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon them who were watching them. So they went from celebration to fear. And then he cries, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in the cloud. And, of course, everybody knows that this is a picture of the rapture of the church, right? As J. Oliver Buswell in his theology, mid-trib. He places that because the next thing is the seventh trumpet. It's the last trumpet of the book of Revelation. So he goes, the last trumpet, this has got to be it. And so he sees them as a picture of the rapture, but that's not accurate at all. It's not the last trumpet in history. It's just the last trumpet in the book of Revelation. But they ascend to heaven. Now, who are these again? Let's, let's review. Who are the two witnesses? They are Jewish men doing ministries of uh, analogous at least to great Jewish men of the past, Israelite, Hebrews. Then we come to chapter 12, and we have the dragon against Israel in Revelation 12. And I'll hurry along here because we, uh, I've been kind of gabby. I'll, uh, we have three characters here, three personages, maybe say it that way, the woman, the child, the dragon. Let me start with the identification of the child first because it's easier. It's clear and easy. Chapter 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so who is that? That is easily Jesus. He's not the answer to every question, but he's the right answer to this question. The identification of the red dragon. This is also clear and easy. Chapter 12, verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. I don't know how the Apostle John and the vision that Jesus gave him could make this any clearer. Okay, that who we're dealing with, the red dragon, is Satan himself. And then the identification of the woman. There are three views. One is that's the Virgin Mary. It's a prominent Catholic view. Not all Catholic scholars will hold to it. I have a commentary by a Catholic on the book of Revelation who does not hold to this view. Uh, but it's a prominent Catholic view. There's a strong reason to reject it. The text says that the woman is a sign, which means she is symbolic, not a real woman. Second view is that this is the church. Now, there is the view that it's Israel or the church. We can't figure out which, and we won't be able to. There's that, it's an agnostic view, I suppose. But a lot of folks hold it's the church. Reason to reject this, if this is correct, it means the church gave birth to Christ. But this is backwards. Christ gave birth to the church. Third view is that it is Israel. And this is where me, Ryrie, and Jesus hold this view. So it must be right. Reasons to accept. The image is defined in Genesis 37, 9 through 11. You remember the story of Jacob and his dream. Uh, he told it to his uh, uh, father, his brothers. The image refers to the family of Jacob or Israel. The context of Revelation 12 makes sense if there is a future for Israel. So we're dealing with this woman who is the ethnic family of Israel, that is, the nation of Israel. And so we have Israel nationally here in the book of Revelation. 
And in the end time days, during the tribulation period, Satan attacks her as we go through this. Now, I could spend a little more time walking through that chapter, just we don't have time. So I'm going to give a glimpse of the kingdom in Revelation 14. Now, that's a picture. The picture there actually represents Revelation chapter 7, when the great is supposed to represent the 144,000 on earth. That's, if you count them, there are 12 blocks of 12,000 people each. Yeah, I counted every one of them just to make sure it was 144,000. And then the unnumbered, uncountable multitude in heaven from every language and tribe. I thought the artist did fairly well in trying to capture the sentiment of the passage. Uh, But that's out of Revelation 7. I just put it up there. In Revelation 14, we have verses 1 through 5, we have the 144,000 on Mount Zion. The location is Mount Zion. And there's debate about whether it's a heavenly Mount Zion or an earthly Mount Zion. And I lean toward the earthly Mount Zion, Jerusalem on earth, in verse 1. It seems there are voices from heaven that are heard on earth, in verse 2. I heard, from, I heard a voice from heaven. So he's like, he's, I'm on earth hearing this. Is that what he's saying? Is he, is, is he in the experience of the 144,000? Has he been uh, zoomed ahead? Fast-forwarded to the 144,000 on Mount Zion. He's standing there looking at them. The 144,000 are being taught a new song of redemption in verse 3. Further descriptions of the 144,000 are given in 4 and 5. They are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And these have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So... We're talking about very godly 144,000. I take this as a glimpse of the coming kingdom. Now, one of the reasons I do this, and I just have to share this, is I see, you see the seals and the trumpets, and the, the seventh trumpet is in Revelation 11, after the two witnesses. Two witnesses go to heaven, and they have the seventh trumpet. And in that section, it says, the seventh angel sounded that loud voices saying, the kingdom of the world, I'm in chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And I think what we have after that is an interlude, 12, 13, and 14, which tells us, In fact, the whole rest of the the book, until we get to 19, these are the things that are going to take us to the kingdom. He makes the announcement. Now, these are the things that take us to the kingdom. Then we have chapter 12, description of the things that are going to take us to the kingdom. Uh, Satan against Israel, Antichrist against the world, 13. Here's a glimpse of that kingdom. Then we have the bold judgments, the thing about uh, Babylon, and then Christ comes in chapter 19, and the kingdom is set up in 20. That's kind kind of the flow of the book in a large scope as I see it. And then we have the New Jerusalem. In New Jerusalem, I have to say that there are some Jewish things that are mentioned. A lot of times we think of the New Jerusalem as churchly truth. 
on Revelation 21. I don't know if I put the verse there. There it is. Verse 12. The gates of the city. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And so even in the final great city, Jewish things are not left out. They are mentioned. And I wish I had time to develop some of those thoughts a little bit more. Uh, do ethnic Jews and the nation of Israel have a place in God's future plans for the world? According to the book of Revelation, the answer is yes. yes. Okay, so I'll open it up to questions. But I might need some help with uh, somebody with the microphone. Thank you. Thank you, sir. A question on the identity of the two witnesses. Okay. Moses died. We know that because Jude talks about Michael wrestling with um, Satan over the body of, of uh, Moses. And then um, we don't know that Elijah goes up in the chariot. And they are not on earth, so we would assume they have an interim body because that's how they show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, so they go up to heaven. Uh, heaven or paradise. Okay, glorified bodies. What? Yeah, they, they glorified bodies. So when they come back, they can't die. Right. That's possible. Uh, well, not only that, but if they have go back to mortal bodies, they might be angry. <laughs> yeah, it's like transmigration. Yeah, if I went to if, if I went to heaven and had to be sent back into you know Satan's world, yeah, that would be body, an argument I, for people yeah. like Moses and Elijah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where where I lean because I can't I can't figure out how to deal with the Mount of Transfiguration otherwise. Yeah. Of course, it could be a resuscitation. Uh, who knows about Elijah? Elijah's the one we just don't know. Could be like Lazarus. You know, on your chart there in between chapter 14 and 21, um, a great thing to include is Revelation 20, verse 9. Because it talks about the rebellion at the end of the millennium. And it says they surround the beloved city. And when you track that imagery through the Psalms, it's a clear reference to Jerusalem. Sure. So a lot of people will look at the, like Lad you were talking about, will look at Revelation 20 and say, oh, there's nothing Jewish here. But clearly there is. The beloved city is an unmistakable reference to Jerusalem. Okay, good observation. Anybody else? I promise I won't be mean to you if you ask a question. Uh, I can't promise that Elliot won't be. Yeah, Andy and I will have a conversation for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> well, the other thing is with the tribe of Dan, have you, would, have you studied Arnold's view on that, that it's just um, stylistic, in other words... There's really 13 tribes 
And so a tribe always gets bumped out somewhere. So um, in Deuteronomy 33, one of the tribes is missing. It might be Levi. In right. Ezekiel 47, one of the tribes is missing. And so, yeah, you know, Dan, Dan being missing just could be stylistic because John likes 12 yeah. and he bumps one out. So there's no big, you know, it's just to read into that that the Antichrist is going to come from Dan is, is, is a bit much. Yeah, and you see... Uh See, Manasseh is in there, uh, as well as Joseph. Okay, that seems a bit, bit odd, but they do things like that. If you look at all, like the four or five times they have the genealogies listed, uh, there's not any consistency in the way they're presented, and that's okay with God, apparently. Mm-hmm. So we just have no trouble with that. Um, I see, yeah, that's, that's probably a good observation by Arnold. I just don't see any reason why... We can uh, have any confidence in what Lad says about that. And do you hold the renovation or new creation? In I have. Ren- I hold the renovation. Renovation. Okay. I do. You're talking about Revelation 21. Yeah. Okay. On the on, on God's numbering 12 or 13. What's that? So, so, on God's numbering 12 or 13, you ne- never have a consistent list of the 12 tribes what about the consistent list of the 12 apostles who are the foundation in the uh, New Jerusalem well because you have yeah, is Dan's, yeah Dan's left out of that let's do that well, yeah, yeah Dan's left out of that <laughs> but, but you've, got, you've got Paul and you've got the situation with um, uh, what, what's his name in Acts 1 Matthias, yeah, yeah. So, who are, who are who are the twelve? Who uh, gets bumped? Do you have a quarter? Let's flip and see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, God I didn't mean, tell I, us. I, I always make fun of this because this is God's math. You have, you never get the same list of twelve tribes, but it's always twelve, and you have got the same kind of issue with the apostles. But remember, the apostles are going to be over the tribes. Yeah. So and some of them you can explain, like Joseph over Manasseh and Ephraim. Right. You can explain right. that. I think. Uh, uh, and Joseph probably represents Ephraim in, in that list. Uh, so there's some of them you might can explain, but you can't explain away all of it. It's just God likes to, uh, diversity sometimes. So, but if the 12, if Jesus told the apostles they'll be over the 12 tribes, and you've got really 13 tribes, now you have 13 apostles, so it works. I'm just poking at you. Just go away, Robbie. <laughs> I guess what I was thinking is that if you have the tribe of Levi, I don't know why you would need the tribe of Levi in the, in the millennial period at this point, because they had they had a very specific purpose in reference to sacrifice. Oh, you think they're going to be taking over millennial kingdoms temple? So you're okay. You're okay. So that's why you have, but they wouldn't be after that, though. After the millennial period, right? <laughs> well, we okay. Yeah. That that makes sense to me. I was wondering about that. I thought, well, they would uh, they would have a limited function, but I guess you're right. If you do Ezekiel's temple, that's what you're talking about. Okay. Hmm. Did y'all resolve that problem without me? I think we did. <laughs> <laughs> 
So in the New Jerusalem, will there be a distinction between the church and the Jewish people in the renovated, in our renovated home? Yeah, my view is that there's an eternal distinction uh, between Israel and the church. Uh, and, but I think we will share some things. In fact, I did a paper on the, at the council uh, on dispensational hermeneutics a few years ago on what Israel and the church share. And I uh, worked through some possible implications of the way we argue theologically uh, about that. But, um, yeah, I think even the city itself, you know, if, does that mean there's Jewish inclusion in the city? I mean, if we take literally the dimensions of that city, which are what? Yeah, 1,500 miles, right? 1,500 miles. Some, some will say 1,200, 1,300. Um, uh, but it's a general ballpark. 1,500 yeah. cube. cube. It's like the Borg. How I'll many will that hold? Um, so that's, that's big enough to encompass within it, inside of it. You know, uh, Is that wall-to-wall condos, golden condos? Or what is there inside that? It's big enough to encompass the land of Israel. I mean, I'm just toying with that idea. It's one of those things. I'm like Elliot. I'm just exploring some things. But it's a limited Uh, space, and that's got to uh, encompass every soul that's died in Christ, every person that comes to Well, it's our home. It's going to be our home. It's going to be our home. And the the question is, uh, because the city is called, is related to the bride of Christ uh, in Revelation uh, 21. The question is, What's the relationship of the Jewish people to that city? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are they outside the city? Are they inside that city? Mm-hmm. It's big enough to encompass them. There's, we're just not told enough to really be dogmatic about that. It's going to be interesting, though. Yeah. But I see an eternal distinction. We'll have, and, it's, and my distinction is uh, church is still not a nation in the political sense. And we have a, our relationship of in Christ and with him. A special relationship with him, and I think that Israel has with the Father, and I think there there's some unique relationship things that will continue for eternity, and that's okay. We'll all be happy with that. The covenant guys will pout for a little while. I've got a question I need answered. You know, you have Israel and you have the church, and we know that, and I agree with you, they have an eternal distinction. What is the status of all those mentioned after the 12 tribes of every people, tongue, nation, and so forth, which does seems to be distinguished from the 12 tribes of the 144,000. And they don't, these are not church people. They're not Israelites. What are they? There are other categories. There are more than two peoples of God. Okay. So I haven't thought about that. So where would we classify them? The pre patriarchs, Time period. Okay. Adam, Noah, all them. Then you have the trip saints who die. You have millennial saints who so, maybe die. So there'll be three statuses in the in the world to come, you think? Yeah. There'll but, be, yeah, are, church, church, Israel, and other. Are they ever mentioned again in the book of Revelation after that point? I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't identify. Yeah. <laughs> Church Israel, I don't identify. Yeah. Okay, anybody else question? Okay, uh, I don't know what these, uh, so is there a meal here at the church, Andy? Yeah. 
You want to say something about that? Um, in terms of dinner, because we...